Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by Mint Mobile. Cut your wireless bill to as little as 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash mission log. This episode is also brought to you by ExpressVPN. Take back your internet privacy today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 362, looking for Parmrock in all the wrong places. Welcome to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we take a look at each and every episode of Star Trek and try to discover the morals, meanings hidden within, the sometimes not-so-subtle innuendos that lie within. This week, looking for Parmok in all the wrong places. Looking for Parmok in too many deep spaces, searching their... Uh, forget it, you know, you get the drift. If you're looking for how to contact us, please set your subspace frequencies to these following subspace channels. Mission Log relies on your participation, so that's why we want to hear from you. Help us spread the word by giving us a like or a share on Facebook or Twitter, where you'll find us at Mission Log Pod. Tell others about us there, and if you're inclined to leave us a review at Apple Podcasts, we'll be grateful, and we'll share those in a future supplemental. You can reach us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by calling 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now, without further ado, here is John Champion with the lyrics, I mean trivia, for looking for Parmach in all the wrong places. Hey, look, I'll sing it. Don't tempt me. I, I will. I we'll turn this whole thing into karaoke right now. <laughs> All right. Trivia for today's episode. Well, it was written by Ronald D. Moore. And here Ron gets the credit for both the story and the teleplay. It was really his baby. Uh, but the heart of it, doing a riff on Cyrano de Bergerac, was Michael Dorn's idea. It's a simple kind of a throwaway idea that sticks the more that people talk about it. So eventually Ron took it and ran with it. The pretense served a few purposes, but primarily it was the appeal of fleshing out the Dax and Worf relationship that he felt was most intriguing. And I did mention Cyrano de Bergerac, of course. Uh, so if you haven't read the original 1897 play or seen it performed in a high school or a theater near you or seen the movie, I recommend the one with uh, Jose Ferrer. Do check those out. Now, the episode was directed by Andrew Robinson. Look at that, Garrick himself. 
We've talked about the Star Trek directing school before, that sort of informal ritual of learning that many actors have gone through, starting with TNG. Andrew has a theater background, and he just happened to have received awards for two shows that he directed in L.A., The production staff were well aware, and he put his hat into the ring. And here we are with Andrew's debut as a TV director. While this is his only DS9 outing, he will later direct two episodes of Voyager. All right, about that Batleft fight. This is pretty much all Armin Shimmerman doing his own stunt work. He worked with Dan Curry to understand the basics and how to make it look right. Then he took home a Batleth prop, and he studied with the weapon for 10 days to get the moves down. And on top of that, he worked with a mime to nail the bits at the end where Quark isn't in control of his own actions. The prop that they used as a sort of motor control puppeteering device between Quark and Worf was designed by John Eaves, and it was purposely left incredibly vague so the audience wasn't bogged down with technical details. Science advisor Andre Bormanis did say, though, that you can kind of think of it like a CG motion capture device. It is very commonplace now in special effects. Not as much back then. Now, about the set where they have that fight, it was the same one that they built for Apocalypse Rising. They just let it sit. They emptied out all the statues and took out that kind of riser platform, and they got to reuse it here uh, on this relatively lower-budgeted episode. So good recycling of sets there. Now let's talk about guest stars. Well, it's very nice to welcome back three Trek guest stars. We have the great Joseph Ruskin again as Tumek, who we saw in the House of Quark. Of course, Joseph is a veteran Trek guest star going back to his turn in the Gamesters of Triskelion as Galt. Thank goodness we're not done with him yet because he will be back in both Voyager and Enterprise as different characters. As Grilka, we welcome back Mary Kay Adams, mostly known for her work in soap operas. And Norman, Norman, for you, let's not forget Babylon 5. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And this is Mary Kay's second and final appearance in Star Trek. Finally, Grilka's bodyguard, Thopak, is played by Phil Morris. Think back, way, way back to the first season TOS episode, Miri, and there you can spot a little Phil Morris. Fast forward to Star Trek III, and there he is, all grown up as a cadet in a Starfleet uniform, The name should already be familiar to you, though. We pointed out before that Phil's dad is the late Greg Morris, who was one of the stars of Mission Impossible, hence why Phil was an easy casting choice to make when shooting the original Star Trek. And then, of course, I love it that Phil went on to play Grant Collier, Barney's son, in the 1980s version of Mission Impossible. We'll see him one more time on DS9, then again on Voyager. Love is in the air. Don't worry. It's still mainly oxygen and nitrogen. But trust me on this one. Prologue. Evening time and Dr. Bashir is doing that totally cool and normal thing, which is stopping outside the door to the O'Brien's quarters in order to eavesdrop. Quark happens by and lends an ear. 
is an argument between Miles and Kira since Miles hit her spring ball racket. He's just looking out for her and his and Keiko's baby, which leads us to Keiko, who just happens to be walking down the corridor that moment, entering her quarters to break up the fight, which puts an end to Quark and Bashir's entertainment. In the replimat, Jadzia and Worf are discussing the finer points of Klingon opera when they spot a group of Klingons coming in through an airlock. It's two men and a woman, and when Worf gets a look at her, he's rather taken. She's glorious, to which Dax answers, well, she's all right. They follow her into Quark's, where they see a reunion between the Klingon woman and Quark, an extremely familiar one at that. This jogs Dax's memory to point out to Worf that the woman is Grilka, Quark's ex-wife. Act 1. Quark is schmoozing at his best when he learns Grilka's family has run into some financial problems. He says he'll take a look at the books to see if he can make things right. And he better. Grilka is traveling with two male Klingons, an advisor named Tumek, and a guard named Thopak. It's the latter who threatens Quark with his life if he doesn't get it just right. This all gives Dax time to catch Worf up on Season 3 of Deep Space Nine, namely The House of Quark, in which Quark found himself accidentally becoming Grilka's husband by claiming he killed her husband. Long story short, he helped her, she helped him, they divorced, all good. So for Worf, you're saying there's still a chance. Dr. Bashir has been working on a way to suppress some of Kira's sneezes. When Chief O'Brien stops by to pick up the device at the infirmary, the two talk a bit about Kira's various side effects from the pregnancy. The chief says he's concerned about a rash he saw on the major's thighs when he was helping her out of the tub, which leads Bashir to some ribbing about just how close Miles and Kira have become. With Worf's interest piqued, he shows up at Quark's bar later to make a show in front of Grilka. There's the tough guy Klingon posturing, insulting her companion, Thopak. It's all a little awkward until Tumek steps in and says, Let me have a little word with you, Worf. This kind of thing doesn't fly since you, of all people, are seen as a traitor. Best to leave us alone, and the lady would like you to leave. So he does. Act 2. Worf is licking his wounds. Dax is there to lend a supportive ear. In walks Quark, who needs a little advice of his own. He's been invited to a private dinner with Grilka, and he's not sure what to do. Dax tries to give him some pointers while Worf listens in. Then, really telling himself, he chimes in about the custom of bringing the leg of a freshly killed Lingta to declare his intentions. Either that will work, or Grilka's bodyguard will shatter every bone in his body. Good enough for Quark, and maybe Worf is getting an idea here, too. At Shea O'Brien, Miles is giving Kira a massage to ease her pregnancy soreness. Keiko even comes in with Kira's freshly altered uniform from Garrick's. Miles and Kira talk a little about the pleasures of home and how Miles misses Ireland, a place Kira says she'd enjoy spending some time with the chief. With the awkwardness level now at maximum, we cut to The Defiant, where Worf is escaping by listening to Klingon opera. Quark comes in the day after his date with Grilka. It went okay, but not perfectly. 
She says he has the heart of a poet. They ate the lingta, they listened to music, all under the threatening watch of her bodyguard. Quark knows he's on the right path, but he knows he needs to help. <clears throat> Quark knows he's on the right path, but he knows he needs help to unlock her heart. Worf says he'll help. Act 3. Like many Klingon rituals, this one will include fighting. So it's off to the hollow suite, where Quark is getting some bat-left tips from Dax and Worf. He's struggling, he's trying to get the ritual words right too. But at least he looks pretty cool in the white fur Klingon battle garb. Dax and Worf do their best to encourage him. It is, after all, the ritual that brought together Kales and Lucara. In the security office, Odo and Kira are going through security reports when he blames O'Brien's lack of attention on a recent rash of thefts. Kira's defense of him raises Odo's suspicion that she's maybe getting a little too personal with him. She's referring to him as Miles rather than the chief. She does explain that she's living with the O'Briens right now and carrying their child. Of course they're close. Odo wants to know how close, but we'll shelve this awkward discussion so we can get back to work. Our Klingon friends are getting antsy. Thopak is really worked up about Quark's advances on Grilka, but Tumek is trying to play it cool. Quark is doing his best, though, when he and Grilka return from a hollow sweet battle. He lays it all out on the table. She may be Klingon, but to his Ferengi heart, she may be worth more than all the latinum in the quadrant. Well, if her Klingon heart doesn't just melt, which prompts Thopak to flip the table right in front of them all. He will not protect a house that lets in a Ferengi, so the guard challenges Quark to a fight to the death. Act 4. Before the bloodshed, we check in with Miles and Keiko, who are having a romantic glass of champagne, celebrating that the chief is managed, well, probably begged, to be off work early every day so he can spend time with his wife. In walks Kira, though. She's stressed, and Keiko suggests that Miles give her a massage. No, he's not up to it, and she really doesn't want one. In fact, she's just there to let them know that she's leaving first thing tomorrow to go to a quiet retreat on Bejor for a few days. Keiko is insistent that Miles go with her, regardless of their objections, so he can watch after her and their unborn child. With it settled, Miles has to go pack his bag. Now on to the Klingon problem. Quark doesn't have a lot of options that don't end in his death or his dishonor, which means losing Grilka forever. But then, struck with inspiration, Dax has an idea. Which leads us to another sparring session in which she and Quark are going at it with their bat-less. This time, Quark is really good, though. And then we see why. Worf and Quark are using some sort of neural link to let Worf essentially act as puppeteer for Quark's actions. It works. Quark is good but exhausted and ready for the fight tomorrow. Worf confides in Dax, though, that he still doesn't get what Grilka sees in Quark, and he can't believe he's helping him. He's the one who should be with Grilka. Dax says maybe he's missing something like someone who's a better match for him, like someone who's more attainable and more fun 
Hint, hint, hint. The moment for the fight has arrived. Quark enters a hollow suite simulation of the Great Hall while Worf directs, hidden away in another suite. As expected, it's a pretty tough fight, and Quark is definitely looking good with the bat left, much to the surprise of Thopak and everyone else, until something goes wrong with the optronic relay linking him to Worf. Act 5. Dax and Worf are hard at work teching the tech, while Quark has to think quickly on his feet. He resorts to an old tradition that he just made up, which is basically making so full of terrible metaphor that it definitely confuses and annoys the Klingons. It works just long enough for Dax to get the tech back online, which means Worf is ready to go and the fight commences. This time it's quick. Quark, well, Worf, gets the upper hand and knocks Thopak to the ground. Worf doesn't kill him, though. Rather, Quark picks up the felled weapon and hands it to Grilka. Grilka then kicks Thopak out of her employ, which leaves her and Quark to their own devices. So now, with the neural link deactivated by Dax, it seems Grilka and Quark are getting um, reacquainted in a more intimate way. Dax, not missing a beat, calls for the hollow suite she's in with Worf to provide her with a batleth of her own. Their fight, which by now we understand as Klingon foreplay, is short but sincere, and Dax gets the upper hand by knocking Worf on his back. Weapons aside, it's still physical, but the camera does indeed cut away before we see what else they're up to. There's Miles and Kira now, ready to depart for Bejor. Kira informs Miles that their destination is a romantic house with a river view far away from the nearest town. Sounds awful. So awful that Miles says he will not go. He'll just tell Keiko that she left without him. In fact, Kira says she'll go to the capital and hang out with Shikar. The two take a pause, hug, and see each other for what might have been in another life, as Kira puts it. Just when it looks like something else might happen, get out, she tells the chief. So as long as all is well that's ending well, we'll catch up with Quark, who is getting examined for the multiple sprains, breaks, bruises, and other stresses put on his body by some uh, very physical exertion with Grilka. Similarly, in Walk, Worf, and Dax, who have some physical damage of their own. While waiting to see the doctor, they discuss the Klingon tradition that says they must get married. Dax says neither of them are very traditional, though. So instead of trying to answer exactly what they have to do next, how about they just take it one day at a time? The end. Nicely done, John. Nicely done. Thank you. I have to ask you, though, yeah. I mean, during the entirety of this episode, when you were watching it, and, I, and knowing that Andrew Robinson directed it, I have to say, he must have been a huge fan of kind of like the, the pantheon of John Hughes movies. Because let me tell you, there are so <laughs> many examples of kind of like the high school teenage angst rom-com uh -huh. type of stuff that's going on here. I mean, you know, it, there's just so much. There's so much 
unrequited this. Well, okay, or 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 is it that John Hughes was such a fan of the classic romantic comedies? It's all coming yeah, to bear it's on all, this episode. You know, they, it, it's, it, it goes to show there are no news stories. You know, <laughs> we're, we're always pulling pieces of the classics and reformatting, recasting, reconfiguring, and, and the, this is where you end up. But you, yeah. almost kinda, you almost kind of want to want to see the, the the scene where you know Quark's like, "Does she like me or does she like like me?" You know, um, I got this note. Can you pass, <laughs> Dax, can you pass her this note? Why do I got to pass her the note? Because you know, you, you know her and she knows you, and you yeah. know, I, I just I, I just want to tell her that I don't just like her; I like like her. And I mowed all these lawns, <laughs> you know, to make all this money so that I can buy her that jacket. You know, oh, I mean, yeah, there's a deep cut. That's good. Mm. That's good. Nice. Oh yeah, all all the romantic stories rolled into one here, um, which we start off with Bashir eavesdropping on his friend. Uh, that's wrong, a hundred percent, and yet people do it, even or maybe especially to their friends. Not saying that's right, <laughs> but it happens. And boy, how do we get started with that? Yeah, it's kind of funny that we're we're coming off of. Uh, when Quark and Bashir were both busted together for like smuggling in those gems, and now they're kind of like working together to see what's going on to get the get the drop the, the eavesdrop on the O'Brien's uh, quarters just to see what's going on. Gossip is just rampant on DS Nine. Yeah, it really is. It, it truly is. Yeah. Um, I'm glad to see that uh, they're sort of spelling out in DS9, which has been a mission log conversation about Worf for a very long time. And here you have Dax calling out Worf's adoption of Klingon tradition when he definitely is not a traditional Klingon. It takes her and it takes Tumek to say, look, you're raised by humans. You're wearing a Starfleet uniform. You're, uh, you know, the, the traitor to him maybe is not the worst of it. Um and and to Dax's point, his adherence to these traditions have not always made things better in his life. You know, uh, he, he needs to sort of really uh, figure out and embrace who he is. Is it me or it was Dax, as soon as Grilka walked onto the promenade, was she just kind of playing like the wounded kind of pseudo wannabe girlfriend the entire time. Like, oh, she's okay. She's all right. Like, what yeah. else? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Which, I mean, it's interesting. They, they were dropping these. I don't even know if it was necessarily the writers specifically dropping hints, but there is a chemistry between Dax and Worf that mm. we've seen just little pieces of their, their bond, particularly because of her um, interest in Klingon tradition and her experiences with Klingon tradition. Um, I, I almost think back, you know, th there's this letter that uh, we shared with Will Wheaton where Patrick Stewart says to Gene Roddenberry, going in uh, before the end of season one, he's like, hey, are we doing a thing here with uh, uh, Picard and Dr. Crusher? Because we play it like that. So are you really doing that? Like, is this a thing we'll actually explore? And I wonder if this is one of those things where it's just a good choice by an actor. And the more of those that happen, you, you got a couple of good lines of dialogue, you got a good director, and you get some good, strong choices by actors. Then those same writers watch it weeks later, and they're like, oh, we could do something with this. You know? 
Are you alluding to that scene? I think it was in the Naked Time or the Naked Now. The Naked, naked now. now. Yeah, yeah. You know where you know he he kind of settles up to Beverly. He's like, right, right, right. He does a little wave goodbye. Yeah, yeah. It's it's fun stuff, you know. But they they would keep dropping these just little hints. And and look, and I get it as a writer, you can't. It's sort of the the Lois and Clark problem. Like as soon as you cement that relationship, the show's over. You know, Mulder and Scully. Yeah, you can't yeah. have them. Yeah, yeah. You know, get together. Um, sure. I feel like Star Trek might be a little bit different, just because you've got a sort of a bigger space to play in. Um, but you know, those relationships still come with their own issues here. Yeah. Um, oh, I, I, we're going to be making song references throughout. I love that Quark. Quotes Edwin Starr. Oh, <laughs> or, so smiling, right? What is he good for? Yes, me. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> and, you know, let's let's look at body parts. So, you know, we were talking about body parts and kind of like core kind of growing from that moment. And he did say that. And I know that he's trying to play up to Grilka. Mm-hmm. But the the before the reformation of, of Quark's sensibilities, he would have been like, well... Rules of Acquisition 34 says war is good for business. Now, he kind of, like, didn't default to that, right? He defaulted to, like, ah, what's war good for? Absolutely nothing. Norman, <laughs> Norman, Norman, what is Rule of Acquisition number 35? Uh, let's see. Wait, wait. Rule of Action 34 is war, war is good for business. Uh-huh. Rule of Action 35 is peace is good for business. Uh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I did read those. I read those. <laughs> Just in case those people, those sharp-eared people out there were listening. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Those Ferengi, yeah. Um, oh, it's funny. Back to your point. There's that uh, conversation between Miles and Bashir. And uh, uh, Bashir says, well, where it gets around, it's a small station. And Miles says, it's a huge station. <laughs> First of all, I mean, that, that bit is funny. Um, yeah. It's just funny already because, yes, that station is huge. And depending on when you join the show, there's either 300 people on board or 2,000 people on board. Even if there's 2,000 people on board, it's still a huge station. But nothing travels faster than gossip. Yeah, um, it, it's kind of like they were dealing with like the small town community type of dynamic, right? You know, It's inevitable. Yeah. 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 Um, I, there is – oh. God, there's some stuff here with Bashir, though. Uh, Cringy. Did you look? I'm sorry. It's not a funny bit. It is. It's creepy. And here's the thing. I, I watch that scene, and you could literally just pull that line of dialogue out and and the reaction to it. Pull that out, and the scene will still work fine. Because you can mm. still get across um, with some slightly different choices by the actors there, you can still get across the idea that Bashir would sincerely, in this case, question his friend like, hmm, sounds like you're quite a bit more intimate with Kira than you were before. You know, you can get across that idea without it just being creepy as hell as it is here. I'm sorry, that was not cool. It all seemed like he was kind of being like the jealous type, like, you know, uh, Kira is starting to kind of Yoko Ono up on him. You know? Yeah. Like, oh, right? you're going to get, first of all, Keiko's back, which is already kind of like stealing your time away from me. And now you have Kira and you're kind of digging her. Yeah. So what's going on there? Oh, by the way, did you like, you know, creep up on her and kind of yeah. take a look at her when you were checking out her rash? Obviously you did look if you saw uh, the rash. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I think it was like one of those kind of like, um, I hate to say it. But like one of those like locker room moments where it's like, so what's going on there? Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
And it just it seemed a little no, it seemed a lot out of place for somebody like like uh, you know the, the doctor, you know. Because just, you can say, "Hey, what's going on there? Hey, talk yeah. to you. I, I'm your pal, B- yeah. Bashir. I'm your pal, Julian. Let, let's talk. What's going on here?" Without resorting to that, did you look? I mean, come on, come on, stop being like so said, adolescent. Man, you know, this is this is this is a, a high school rom com. Yeah, and yeah. that's something that you know one of the jocks would have said is like, "So, dude." Oh, what'd you see in the showers, man, when you got in there? You, but in the rom-com, us, that guy is a jerk. <laughs> we don't yeah. want that guy around. No, we don't want that guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, we, we have to point out poor Morn just being used as a prop by Worf. <laughs> in that scene, like, it's funny to hear Worf apologize ahead of time, but he does just throw Worf on or throw Morn rather onto the floor. Um, also, there was a really funny bit to me. Did you notice in that shot right when Worf sits down in Morn's chair, if you look in the background, there's Tumac sitting at that table and with the graphic behind him, it looks like the Klingon has bunny ears on. <laughs> it's hilarious. It's just <laughs> so, it's so obvious. <laughs> if you go back and freeze stream, you're like, wow, they put bunny ears on Tumac. <laughs> You know what's funny is that when they, when they were focusing on Morn in that scene, when they're kind of like the camera was like drifting to him, not only was he finishing his drink, but he was like using his finger to spoon out that drink. He was really enjoying himself. Yes. I, he's like, he yes. was minding his own business as Morn does. Yeah, right. Like, oh, man, right. I'm just going to, I'm going to enjoy this drink. I'm going to, you know, whatever's at the bottom of this thing, I'm going to scoop out with my finger yeah. and then I'm on the floor. Yeah. <laughs> what's up with that? Not fair at all. <laughs> yeah. Not cool. Oh, and what was the line? So I meant no disrespect. You showed none, which was interesting. So that, that was Worf to Tumek uh, after he has threatened uh, Thopak. I meant no disrespect. And Tumek says, you showed none, which was a funny line because Worf literally just disrespected Thopak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but it, interesting, though, that in the context of this being part of the Klingon mating ritual, it's like, oh, that part's okay. What's not okay is that you're a traitor. But the right. other part, we're cool with. You know, I, I didn't know until you brought it up in the trivia that that was Galt. I was like, what? Not the yeah. Uh, the other, you know. Um, yeah, Tumac. Yeah. Tumac. Yeah. Because I, yeah, like, yeah. I was like, I know this guy's face. Yeah. And, and now, you know, when you, in the trivia, I was like, oh, of course, of course. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, you know, I've always said that, uh, you know, Odo has always been really good at studying the human condition and probably mm-hmm. even more so now since he's humanized. Uh, or turned into a humanoid, but his 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 instincts are still there. And okay, so you know when we're talking about Bashir, and Bashir is kind of like showing his jealous side. Odo's kind of showing his jealous side too, right? Right. Because yes. he's like, oh, you know, before you used to call him, you know, the chief, but now you're calling him Miles. There's this intimacy that happens when you start using their proper name. You know, it's like if, if Miles started calling her Norris, which he didn't, because that would have been a step above their relationship. But he's, you know, or Odo's has his eye on like her behavior and almost kind of oh, yeah. like how she was acting when when Shakar came on the station. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. I'm so, surprised we didn't just didn't, you know, throw Odo completely into the mix again with his romantic plot line uh, as well. But, yeah, he's he, he's aware of these things. Yeah. Um and what is it? Tumac, Tumac asks uh, Quark, have you ever pursued a Klingon woman? No. Uh, except for Kalar. Come on, Worf. She right. was awesome. Kalar was awesome. 
I, please, just for God's sake, don't ask him about his son either. <laughs> yes. You know? uh, the extension Worf. of Worf's uh, ignoring his his prior family. I do Incredible. remember that scene where like Worf was singing Klingon opera to her, and then she turns and is like, you know, it's, he goes, I don't want to hear any of that Klingon nonsense. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and mm-hmm. uh, as Susie Plaxon does. Yeah. So, yeah, there I forgot. Yeah, well, no, I didn't forget. Worf forgot. Yeah, there's, Worf forgot. There's <laughs> you remembered. Norman a remembered Worf forgot. Klingon woman in, yeah. in uh, his past. Yeah. Uh, so what, what I love uh, about kind of like the, the Keiko, Kira, Miles dynamic, because Keiko's kind of like going around with her life and, you know, as business as usual. And, you know, Keiko's just, you know, living with them and they're, they're making sure that their, their baby is okay. But the whole thing about Ireland and when he was giving her the massage and he was thinking of kind of like the fondness of home and it's like, I wish you could have been there with me. And yeah. he was drifting into something. And I think what he was drifting into was actual real feelings that I think they were starting to, oh, yeah. to at least share or yeah. explore. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Um, oh, hey, uh, in this episode, we learned that Worf has size 18 boots. And uh, you know what they say about a guy with big shoes? He's got a big bat left. <laughs> oh right. yeah, he's got a big bat right. left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to go with big feet. I was going to go with big feet, but uh, big bat left. That is and the other, the other correct answer. Yeah. You know uh, what? Um, one of the things that I found really, really endearing um, about uh, Terry as Dax is that she has this just devilish look at times that she's just mastered. And you know when she shoots that look, kind of like either at someone in the, in the cast or in the story or kind of like a, a breaking the fourth wall and you're, you know what's going on inside that mind of hers. And maybe it's Curzon's mind mm. as well, right? But yeah when, yeah, when she says that she has an idea, watch out. You don't know <laughs> what's going to happen. Um, I also thought that uh, after kind of like the training scene uh, with, with Dax and Worf, she was a little bit more forward than I think I've ever seen her, like in the course of their relationship, starting all the way back when she first saw him in Way of the Warrior. Sure. And and maybe it's because she's also swept in, in this whole uh, Parmok situation where, you know, she sees Worf, you know, uh, pursuing uh, Grilka. She sees Quark pursuing Grilka. What about her? Like, where am I in all this? Where are my feelings? And, and I'm kind of getting kind of like shoved to the side. I'm being kind of like Quark's... Uh, uh, confidant, mm-hmm. and at the same time, I'm being Worf's confidant. But who's my confidant? What about yeah. me? Right. You know, what about my feelings? Right. Good for her. Yeah. I think it's one of those things that sort of comes with the wisdom of age. It's like if you've been around long enough, you can just find a way. Like, yeah, boom. Here's here's my feelings. I'm done. <laughs> you know. Yeah, but I think that some of the the jadzia was really kind of like rising to the surface in in that situation. Well, speaking of that, uh, the trading sequence. What did you think about? Uh, about, you know, Quark, not only in that sequence, but kind of putting on the warrior's gear. He's so cute it, when he, he puts is. on warrior yes. gear. I'm sorry. That's the only way I can describe it. It's great. I want to see that at a convention. I want to see a little Ferengi in Klingon warrior garb. That would be the best cosplay ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Win- winner of many strips of gold-pressed latinum. Yes, yes. So when, when Worf does his Cyrano de Bergerac shtick, isn't that kind of dishonorable for Klingon to do what he did with Quark during this kind of like this fight for Grilka's honor? Because mm. you would think that Worf, Worf would be like, nope, you got to fight him straight up. That's the warrior's way. If you die, you die. That's the way of the code. That's the way of the Klingon. He's like, no, I think I'm going to find a way to win a victory for me and win a victory for you. 
that that Cyrano, though. I mean, you know, uh, Cyrano would would rather have had Roxanne, but um, yeah, he helps Christiane instead. Mm-hmm. So the the, I, the the motivation there is interesting to figure out. But we're also seeing Worf sort of get dismantled by Dax about what his values are and where he really stands, and particularly in that scene with Tumac. And saying like, "Look, you're you're not one of us. You can keep saying it, but you're not." And one of the last things I wanted to bring up at the scene with with the chief and Kira at the end in the shuttle pod. So they admit in a way that there are feelings there, in a way, in a matter of speaking, because they are literally trying to find ways not to admit that there is something there. And when Kira says, in another life, that usually means that, well, I have these feelings. I can't act on them. If it was something different, then I would, but I can't, but they're there. That's how yeah. the algebra works for me, right? Yeah. How do you, do you, do you see that? Oh, I, I see it, and I 100% agree. And I, I think it is a very human and very understandable thing. Yeah. Yeah, I thought they played it just right. And, and honestly, you have to have Kira be the one to say, get out <laughs> you know she's got to be the one who draws the line but it, it's still as hard as that might have been to do it is absolutely the right thing to do um hey and, and just to leave it on a light note that laugh that laugh at the end when bashir asks quark what he's been up to and armin's just uproarious wonderful laugh kills me every time <laughs> Remember those candy hearts from Valentine's Day? Call it a hunch, but the Klingons probably have much more violent candy heart phrases than anyone else. We'll continue with looking for Parmok in all the wrong places in a moment, but we'd like to take a moment to tell you about this week's sponsors. Hey, first up, Norman, Mint Mobile. You know, you and I talk all the time about how our primary way of communicating with people these days is our phones. I I mean, literally all day, every day, that's probably the first device that I go to because, well, I'm working from home a lot more. I need to stay in touch. So my phone has become this necessary device, even more so than it was before. With that necessity, not only does it have to be a great handset, there also has to be a great service behind it. And I think about all those years, literally decades, that I was with one of the big major wireless providers and how much money that cost me month to month because I just completely accepted the idea that my service had to be 100 bucks a month easily. And there was no way to get out of that or to get around it. Well, I was very glad to find that Mint Mobile cut that cost down to a fraction of that original 100 bucks. In fact, you can cut your wireless bill down to 15 bucks a month, which saves you hundreds of dollars by switching over to Mint Mobile. So with anybody within the sound of my voice who was looking to save without sacrificing service, switching to Mint Mobile is a no-brainer. I mean, look at all the benefits. You keep your phone. You keep your phone number, you get fast 4G LTE service, you get unlimited text, unlimited calls, 
And you get a 100% money-back guarantee if you're not satisfied. That's within seven days of, uh, of receiving your order. So uh, for somebody like me, Norman, and I know like you, who the, the phone is important, and why not save some money on that service? Mint Mobile just makes sense. Oh, absolutely, John. I mean, there are things that people love, and I think it's pretty universal. We love saving money. We love making our money stretch and go further. And as a new customer to Mint Mobile and as a user, I know that every time I see my bill, I'm like, wow, wow, what a difference. So to get your wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and to get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash mission log. That's mintmobile.com slash mission log. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash mission log. And while we're talking about working from home, well, we want to thank our other sponsor, which would be ExpressVPN. You know, I'm literally, I do everything from home now, Norman, and that means uh, work. It means my personal work, like uh, banking and paying bills. Everything that I have to be on top of, I'm doing for my computer. And the more that I learn about how that works, the more I'm kind of terrified about what I did in the past <laughs> because going online and logging into a bank, logging into uh, a, a service where I have to pay something or put in sensitive information, I always figured that using incognito mode was all that I needed to do. And what I've learned by using ExpressVPN and studying a little more about it, incognito mode does not hide your activity. Um, in fact, it doesn't matter what mode you use or how many times you clear your browsing history. That might be on your computer, just sitting there on your desk, but your ISP can still see every website you visited. And that's why I'm at home or no matter where I am, I do not go online, particularly doing anything sensitive without using ExpressVPN. So it doesn't matter who you get your internet service from. Uh, you know, when I lived in one place, I had Comcast. I live here and uh, I use Spectrum. ISPs in the United States can legally sell your information to ad companies. I don't want that, but ExpressVPN steps into the picture. So ExpressVPN reroutes that connection through their secure servers. So your ISP can't see what sites you visit. And even better, they're keeping that information secure by encrypting it. What I love about using uh, ExpressVPN, John, is that it's so easy to use. The app shows you exactly how you need to stay connected, how to stay connected when you think that you're not even connected, which is like never, because I never have a problem with ExpressVPN. And sometimes I just go on the app to say like, oh, I'm still connected? Great. Right. <laughs> because now I can just use my device as I usually do. I'm on my phone all the time. So if, you, if security is a big deal for you and making sure that your privacy is also protected, make sure that you protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by CNET and Wired. Visit our exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash mission log. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash mission log to learn more. So, Norman, I feel like kind of the way to look at this episode, looking for Parmach in all the wrong places, so tempted to sing, so tempted to sing, <laughs> is that we sort of have to look at it per relationship and the dynamics of, of each one, you know, because there are different things at stake. There are different aspects explored right off the bat. And I sort of put them in an order that made sense to me which was sort of from least to most 
interesting or or maybe not even interesting as a word, but uh, but more real, more resonant emotionally. The Quark and Grilka plotline, of course, that is just ripped right out of Cyrano. And of course, we've got Worf in the Cyrano character there. Um, and Quark is Christiane. And uh, that would make Grilka Roxanne here. But it, it, it seems a little by the numbers. It, it is done well, but really for Quark, okay, he gets to express himself a bit. For Grilka, she sort of, well, we know that she's getting one thing out of this, which is the financial help that she needs from at least having a uh, maybe not good, but very crafty businessman check out the family books and try to regain her name. So there, there are different motivations there. Quark's infatuation is fun to watch. I mean, there's no two ways around that. But I don't know if there's sort of a deeper thing to be found there. You basically have to end the episode where you end up, which is Quark gets to be the hero for the day. Grilka is clearly having fun. And you have that hilarious moment at the end in the infirmary where they have just worn each other out, or at least she's worn him out. <laughs> That's really all that comes down to. No, I mean, I think essentially this episode, uh, for all of the, the fun that we've kind of poked at it being, you know, somewhat of uh, channeling the, the John Hughes type of, you know, ram- romantic high schoolish college-ish comedies of the 1980s. I mean, it's a lighthearted episode. Oh, and sure. I think that, yeah. you know, it has to be in there. And, and I think it actually hit the right time. Because, you know, since uh, since Broken Link and then since, you know, Apocalypse Rising and The Ship, you have a lot of heavy episodes and a lot going on, especially with, you know, what we covered with The Ship in, the, in the, our previous episode. There's a lot that we discussed at a very, very serious level. Right. And I think that this is one of those perfect opportunities just to release the tension well, I guess it depends on what tension we're talking about because there's a lot of sexual tension in this episode. Oh, sure. But yeah. you're allowing characters to just kind of breathe a little bit and to let their hair down literally at the end for <laughs> our couples. <laughs> right. right. But just to see them in a more relaxed environment, to stay in tune with them, and just to give everyone a, a moment to catch their breath, to catch up. I mean, even even Cisco, Avery, was only in there for that one line. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. And I, and I think that removing him from the equation just kind of removes a lot of that heaviness, you know, from, you know, from an, uh, a standard episode where, you know, Captain Cisco would be like, you know, it's, it's something of a dramatic turn usually when it's Captain Cisco uh, at, at, the, at the center of the episode. It, it, it's so, funny. I, I th- thought for a moment that this was one that he directed because he's in it so little. I was very pleased to see that Andrew Robinson directed. And I was like, oh, okay, yes, that that sort of light, deft, theatrical hand. Yes, now I get it that that seems like Andrew Robinson, but there was so little Cisco. I was like, oh, okay, well, maybe he's off screen for a reason here. I also think that there was a really nice um, chemistry with the cast that started to develop for me. I think that when Worf came in with Way of the Warrior, I don't want to speak for for the fans out there that know the the chemistry of the, uh, his insertion uh, intimately when that happened. But for me, everyone in this episode seemed to click so organically and genuinely. I felt that Terry and Michael just had a, 
a new rapport and they know how their characters work together, the timing involved and the glances that they shoot at each other and how they all, even, even Michael and Armin, I think they actually have just a better working dynamic and speed. And even though this isn't uh, a serious episode or an episode that necessarily adds to the lore, I do think it goes a long way of just filling in those quieter character moments that, that glue those characters together in these, these offbeat type of stories. And I, I, mm. I found it really nice to watch. Let's talk about that Dax and Worf plot line then next, because I, I, this is, <laughs> well, I'm going to say that for everybody, there's at least one side of this that everybody can relate to. It, you like someone, they like someone else, you're sort of waving your arms over your head saying, what about me? What about me? Not that I've ever been there. N not, not that I'm saying that I can relate to that at all. <laughs> or, or maybe you're just on the other side, which could be just as bad uh, that you're, you know, you're, you're sort of that dense about what's going on right in front of you. So I, I thought that even with sort of the broad comedy that, that, that played, like you're saying here, there is sort of um, a, a genuine chemistry. There's a genuine relationship that we're seeing there between the actors, you know, just playing the roles that breathes life into what would otherwise sort of be very much by rote, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I thought, you know, sort of giving them props for saying like, yeah, we, we've got this farce that we've decided to build into this episode. Like you said, to give us some breathing room, fill in some of those gaps, but at least try to find the, the realness within that, uh, that light, lighthearted episode. What I really want to talk about is Miles and Kira. Mm -hmm. because I think this is a very meaty topic and and honestly it could have been taken much more seriously depending on what kind of episode they decided to write there's something that happens to people when they and not not everybody but, but you know the, there is something that can happen with people when they work with each other or they're in very close proximity particularly under stressful or very emotional circumstances. You know, and, and what's interesting is that we tend to confuse that intimacy sometimes with attraction. And sometimes that works itself out because clearer heads might prevail. You, you kind of get what's going on. And sometimes it doesn't work itself out. So then those relationships get formed and sometimes those relationships even work out or they explode horrifically. And it's interesting that on set, it's kind of a cliche. You hear about people who work together in a show. I mean, here we've got uh, uh, Bashir and Kira. We've got Nana and Sid working together for a few years and a real relationship formed there, partly because proximity and you're in this high stress situation and as actors part of your job is to be present and open oneself up emotionally in these scenes i thought that miles and kira plotline because of all of that had a there was a sincerity there even though they kept playing it for comedy 
Now, I'm a little disappointed that Keiko was written to be so clueless. Like, it's part of the trope. It's part of how you have to write that. You have to have that character not totally aware because the other characters have to figure it out for themselves. Mm-hmm. And I get it, again, that this is being played as a farce. But but honestly, I, I feel like those moments were so ripe for more honest exploration. I, you know, should it be a book? Should it be a two-parter? I don't know. I, I don't know if we need to go that far. But there was an absolute realness to that contrivance that I thought really hit home and really can hit home for for anybody who saw it you know and it's it's something that they built up over time you know i mean miles was invested in this this surrogate motherhood that kira has brought to their family and now they have this extremely extended irish family now with with miles and with keiko and now with kira and molly and then the newborn you know that's coming and i think that miles has always been very very protective and very involved with family life. I think that's very important to him. And he wants to make sure that that's well-protected, that's well-fostered, that's well-developed, and it's, it's very special. That I know this only extends, to, you know, doesn't extend past his quarters, but everything that happens in his quarters, it's, it's on his terms. It's his time. It's his family. And he'll do everything to make sure that that is a happy place for him to come home to. Mm-hmm. That being said... I think that in many ways, when Kira, when they when they agreed to have Kira come and stay with them, sure it was a good idea at the time because they wanted to make sure that the baby's okay and that for for whatever need that Kira had, they would provide. But then you start seeing these things happen where he's massaging her legs, he's checking out her rashes for whatever reason because right. they're there, right? And uh, even Keiko's like encouraging him to give. Kira, his famous massage. They're talking about all these different interests that they share with travel and the fondness and the yearning for being in these places. And you're right, John. It's like when that happens, there is just a human dynamic that that kind of cries out for connection. And that connection is organic. It's not ill-meant. It's very, you know, uh, comes from a very honest place. Yeah. And I think that in many ways, I think that there's a warmth to Kira that she's, uh, that she's sharing with the chief that she's never seen before. Or he's never seen before in her. It's usually, you know, major Kira, always on duty, always with her guard up. And now she's very vulnerable. She's very fragile in this, in this situation that she's in. And Miles wants to protect her in every way possible, both physically and emotionally. And I think that that's something that Keiko at times doesn't afford him. So once he makes that warm connection with somebody, he's, he kind of goes forward with it in a way he doesn't expect. And that's interesting about relationships. Like sometimes you're just like, oh, there's that moment where it's kind of like go or no go. Yeah. You know, and if you go, things will definitely change. And especially with people that you work with and especially with someone who's your superior officer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and it, let's be honest here, you know, the way that the Miles and Keiko relationship has been written so far mostly pretty terrible. Uh, you know, I mean, they they fall back on just a lot of a, a lot of tropes, a lot of easy ways out. But here you have this strong character in Kira 
And it, it seems, you know, it's sort of a parallel between what the characters are doing on screen to what the writers are doing behind the scenes, which is saying, this is a more interesting path to follow. For now, may not be the right path to go down, but we have to acknowledge that this is a path we have to look into. And hopefully we do the right thing at the end of the day, which they did. <laughs> Let's make that clear. They did do the right thing. But um, yeah, I, I just felt like there was a real honesty to to letting those characters find themselves in that situation, uh, which was very refreshing in a show that otherwise was all played for laughs. Yeah, and I think it's also well-written, very human, very natural that, you know, in with 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 people that have been in long relationships, long-term relationships, and, and they're very loyal, and they are very, you know, uh, just trusting in well-established relationships, there are times, you know, when people are just only human. And I know that's mm -hmm. not an excuse. It's not an excuse for what the chief could have done. Yeah. But at the same time, though, it is a very natural thing to do when two people just connect in a moment. And they know sometimes that after that moment, it was the wrong thing to do. And if everyone's mature about it and can act rationally about it, then you can move forward with it. But, but there's also that opportunity that you start having that what could have been moment in your life. Yeah. Right? And then if by chance that the chief acted on his baser instincts, then he would have been like, okay, what is this going to do with the newborn? How's it going to affect the dynamic with our family? And especially Molly, you know, if Keiko decides to go a certain way about, you know, their relationship in not forgiving Miles for what he did. Yeah, I'm glad they kind of took it to a certain threshold, but didn't cross that line. Mm -hmm. And both adults identified how that would have turned out. It's a good thing there was no time travel involved. The enchantment under the sea dance was already violent enough without any Klingons around. Well, we have been looking for Parmach in all the wrong places for nigh this entire episode. We keep looking, we keep looking clearly not looking in the right places. But here we are. We have arrived at the end of the show where we've got to wrap it up. It's our obligation to each other and to you. But hey, uh, Norman, something we haven't done in a long time is to do a, a quick reference on the title of the show. Um, mm -hmm. Something we like to drop in every now and then. Look, sometimes they're really obvious, defiant, homecoming. <laughs> you know, they don't need a lot of explanation. But uh, this title, Looking for Parmach in All the Wrong Places, I think most people will know the song Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places, first performed by Johnny Lee, released in 1980. I did not remember that that song was partly a hit because it appeared on the soundtrack for Urban Cowboy, starring John Travolta at a time when he was absolutely on that rising star just a couple of years after uh, Saturday Night Fever. So this song became a huge hit when that movie became a huge hit and the soundtrack that followed. Uh, now, I'm not a big country music fan, but you might also remember a very famous cover version, uh, which came out three years later in 1983 on the But We Sings album, uh, of course, of titled Wukampanub. Uh, so yeah. uh, that that's the one that really stuck with me. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I still have that in my collection. It's it's uh it's wrapped in cellophane. Mm -hmm. It has not been played since the first 
you know, the first time I got it. So yeah, good, good. Well, a, and a true classic. And what with uh, Butwee's tragic ending, uh, I, if you got a, you know, any of you have a signed copy out there, that that thing is just even more valuable. So I'm pretty sure the B side on that was Unce Tice Feet Times a Feet Times a so, yeah, a classic, right? yeah. a classic, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, hey, uh, now that we've filled you all in on the story of looking for Parmach, uh, let's figure out what it all means in the end. But before we do that, how about how about whether or not the episode holds up? So as a production, Norman, what do you think? Well, production-wise, I actually quite liked it. I mean, there are a lot of, of interesting ideas that they put into this episode. I really liked kind of the CGI motion capture device that... Worf used to string along Quark like a puppet. I mean, literally like a puppet. I thought that was actually really neat, although I I still do think that Worf is kind of doing a dishonorable thing by not letting Quark meet his honorable demise. But And that would have solved Worf's problem, really, don't you think? Yeah, pretty much. Think, yeah, pretty much. You know, he's yeah. like, well, if you can't stand up to him, then you're going to have to find someone strong enough and willing enough who can. And I think that was kind of like Worf's whole point. Um, anyway, yeah. though, I mean, pr- you know, production aside, I already talked about, you know, I, how the cast really started to gel for me in this episode and how these quieter moments, these little bit more comedic episodes uh, allow the characters to breathe and stretch a little bit. So there's not a lot of great deep meaning in this episode for me. I mean, I guess I could speculate that in the subtext of all these relationships that kind of feels like, as we've mentioned before, these kind of 1980s high school John Hughes type of, you know, Ferris Bueller's or, you know, Breakfast Club or, and I know this isn't a John Hughes movie, but one comes to mind that's very significant, Three O'Clock High, because in this case, I guess it was uh, the Klingon that fought Quark would have been Buddy Ravel <laughs> meeting Ooh. Quark. Ooh. Oh, yeah. I, I told oh, you yeah. I auditioned for that movie, right? Did you really? I really did. I really, truly oh. did. Yeah. For all of the Patreon subscribers, you will get that story <laughs> on our live recording. Yes. So think about subscribing. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, it was kind of like a, where are going to meet? You know, in the parking lot at three o'clock. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. You know, it was kind of had that feel. And obviously the Cyrano de Bergerac references were very strong in this episode. But, you know, it's, it's that kind of trope where... You know, you have that one person who's right there in front of you, the girl next door, or, you know, the misunderstood socialite that you had to mow a lot of lawns for to make sure that you could afford all the good things that she wants in life. And that's kind of like where Dax was in this. And I I think that the one thing that I really liked about this story is she was always there. She was always the friend. She got friend zoned in this pretty hard. You know, it's it's either like you're going to help me out with the girl or you're going to be the girl that uh, I, I really hope that someone else would be like. Yeah, you know, but she's like, yeah. "What about me?" So she literally had to basically take the bull by the horns and and fight for her man, and she fought for a wharf at the end, and in the end, everything came out um, wonderfully bruised. So, <laughs> you know, look, but, the, the the friend zone sucks, but honestly, sometimes some great relationships come from the friend zone. You might start in the friend zone, but but uh, if you start with the friends and then something else happens, like like you end up bruising each other, great. Great. <laughs> um, or, 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 or making off to um, uh, Bajoran Irish yes. cottage hideaway. Yes, that too. That too. There's something about this episode that I'm still trying to kind of sort out in my head. So I've always said 
that Star Trek is a pretty flexible format that allows a writer to explore different themes and styles all under this general premise, this universe that is Star Trek. You can do adventure shows, you can do thoughtful, heady science fiction, you can do character drama, social political stories, horror, and yes, even comedy. Now, what I don't totally understand is how it seems like DS9 has married itself to the sex farce as a style that needs to be revisited every so often. So like they're all in the writer's room. This is in, in my head. You know, I imagine what happened behind the scenes in 1993. They're, they're all in the writer's room. They're pitching things about the Dominion, Klingons, deep ethical dramas. And then someone raises their hand and says, you know, you know, I, I know I always bring up Twelfth Night or uh, uh but how about, just bear with me, how about this time we go to Edmond Rostand's 1897 hit, Cyrano de Bergerac, what do you think? And, you know, there's always one in the crowd who's the literature major. I know that that guy was sometimes me, but regardless, regardless, it's a little weird here. I feel like introducing Loaxana back on TNG was the attempt to tell that kind of story. And they did it a few times to varying degrees of success, but then those stories worked best when we really got to allow for some depth rather than just only playing it for laughs. So this episode is a little bit of a mixed bag. It's done very well for what it is. There is no question from me about that. I, I asked myself, it was, was it the best way to get to where we are with the characters. I don't know. I don't know that I necessarily think it is, but that's not to say that all the character growth has to come from something darker or more tragic. I genuinely like the interplay between Dax and Worf, even if everything is made so obvious right from the start, right from the get-go, you know. Do I want to watch this episode again right away? Not necessarily, but I don't dislike it. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Am I glad it's there to help fill in, like you said, some of those gaps with the DS9 story overall? Absolutely. I like it when Star Trek tries to do something with relationships and even break a few molds along the way. This one, it, it went there. It definitely did. But it decided that everything had to be played for comedy. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But when you do hit something that is a little more thoughtful and a little more relatable and serious, like the Miles and Kira thing, I feel like that deserved just a, a tiny bit more attention. And I feel like we won't get that later on. But I don't know. I'm here to be proven wrong. So uh, overall, I, I think it does hold up. I think Andrew Robinson did a great job directing it. I think the the fun stuff is really fun. Just... Maybe I need another minute to sit with this episode to figure out how it kind of fits DS9 for me. What about messages, morals, meanings? I mentioned this before. It, this is a fun comp. You know, this is a fun comedic episode. And if anything, I think that uh, you mentioned this in trivia, and I agree that it helped further along Dax's and Worf's relationship. And seeing it kind of happen for the most part, and come to fruition in this episode and seeing it kind of hinted at before in season four, you're seeing something special kind of uh, uh, come to life here in this episode between the two of them. And I think that it's because Terry Farrell's Dax just 
brings this kind of earnestness to her feelings for Worf in a way where you see her just like, hey, I'm <laughs> to coin a phrase from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Dune. Hey, I'm right here. You know, <laughs> like, I'm right in front of you. Right. Right. And if you're not smart enough to see it, it's not that she's going to say, like, you know, forget you. She's like, I'm going to make you see it. Yeah. And I like the fact that she just kind of takes charge and said, I like you. I'm pretty sure you like me. Let's see where this goes. And I have to, if I have to appeal to your baser Klingon nature, I will because I know how. Especially with the ritual between uh, the, the romantic ritual with with Kalis and uh, uh, Lucara, Lucara, yeah, 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 at the end, mm-hmm. you know, and that's a that's a big uh, and and obviously ceremonial fight that establishes how people feel. It's like a you know Klingon courting ritual in a way. Yeah. So I, I like that she didn't give up. But she also didn't play the wallflower and, and kind of sulk and like, oh, woe is me. You know, Worf is going after his own kind because I'm not good enough or I'm not strong enough or I'm not Klingon enough for him. Yeah. And she doesn't take that as the answer. She doesn't take that no for an answer. So I, I can see where this is going. And I, I hope that it's not done or overdone too many times in subsequent episodes because I want to see it earn itself. I want to see this relationship grow organically and not get too boxed into something that's obviously trope-ish in these types of stories. And I want to see like kind of like with Mulder and Scully, I want to see those moments where they come together and kind of explore, are we doing the right thing? Where is this going to go? Yeah. How are we going to, you know, how are we going to uh, work with each other on the station? Are we the same rank? Do I call you sir? Do I call you sir? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. things of that nature, and yeah. and kind of like who gets the who gets the one up on them when it comes to pulling rank? Yeah. Look, there's something I really admire. Well, uh, first of all, to be serious about it, you know, again, uh, the Miles and Kira relationship, such as it is. It, it was interesting to see something that is a realistic possibility played out where you have two adults addressing it and then deciding we have to do the right thing here. That that's, you know, that, that is that plot line in a nutshell. But then the other thing is uh, Dax and, and you alluded to this, which is she's just putting herself out there saying, Hey, I'm here. Here's the situation. Um, th- this can happen if you were down with that, <laughs> you know, and that's really all it takes for her. Had the answer from Worf been an emphatic no, then she probably just would have walked away and said, okay, well, you know, you don't know what you're missing. See ya. Mm-hmm. But she brings a lot to the table and she can fight. Look, since this episode is based around a uh, song parody, I'm going to throw in some of my own uh, songs for this playlist that we're building here. Uh, first of all, because you brought it up, uh, I'm going to make you love me which is a a joint number by the Supremes and the Temptations. Great, great song. I think that one fits here when we're talking about the uh, the Dax storyline. So that one applies to uh, Quark and Grilka just as it does apply to uh, Dax and Worf. Here's another one for uh, Dax and Worf. Love the one you're with, uh, Stephen Stills. Yeah, I think that one works. I think that. And then uh, if you go for the... um, Go for the Miles and Kira storyline. Tempted 
by the squeeze. Mm-hmm. Great song. So, so for Stephen Stills, it'd be like instead of uh, if you can't fight with the one you love, fight the one you're fight with. the one you're with. <laughs> yeah, even better. All right, so everybody, you can put that in your uh, various playlists. That'll be the official playlist for this episode. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you would like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. Enjoy all the great Roddenberry podcasts at podcast.roddenberry.com where you'll find Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, your daily Star Trek news, and Shabam. Shabam! And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next mission log, nor the battle to the strong. Some of the music for mission log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Throwdown Time, Who Does Sarah Know Better, DS9's Crew or Beverly Crusher's Enterprise Dinner Theater. And Transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. I came from a low-income family that was that was struggling. You see how hard life can get. GC became a part of my life because I don't want my family to fall back into that. I never thought education would take me this far. I'm still young. I still have a lot to do in my life, and just want to get things done the way I want with a good education under me. I'm Stacy, and Grand Canyon University helped me find my purpose.